I'm not sure, but I have a working theory as to why the youth group numbers are better this week. Uh, Someone leaked the name of the preacher, and people were able to plan accordingly and be out of the country. You all have missed your opportunity. We're now sealing the doors. It's an honor to be able to preach in the place that has shaped so much of my faith, the place that's meant so much to me. It's an honor. And when Chris asked me if I would come over, I said, absolutely, I'll, I'll make the trip, no problem. But what do you take with you on a trip? I think it depends a lot on the trip. You know, if you are coming to preach a sermon in Fort Smith, Arkansas on a Sunday morning, you bring a change of clothes, a toothbrush and toothpaste, iPhone and charger, a wallet with enough money to grab dinner on the drive out, a Bible. That's pretty much all you need. Probably not too terribly different from what you brought with you this morning. But as I said, it depends on the trip. The youth group that's on a trip, mission trip in Guatemala right now, they probably had to pack some things that I did not have to plan for, like passports, plane tickets, bug spray, tools, first aid supplies, maybe an English to Spanish dictionary. When my wife, Tori, who works as an auditor, goes out to a client site, she takes her laptop, her second monitor and her laptop cord, and stapler and a staple puller, a pen and notepad, a water bottle, sometimes an ID badge to get into sensitive areas and access certain documents. But it depends a lot on the trip. Psalm 121 has been called a sojourner's psalm a psalm conceived and composed for the liturgical occasion of going on a trip. Now, the first two verses were to be spoken by the ones leaving, and verses 3 through 8 were spoken in response by those staying back at home, sort of a call-and-response composition, you see. I'd like us this morning to read it together, and if it's okay, since I'm traveling back to Oklahoma City later today, I'll read the verses of The Traveler. Verses 1 and 2. And then let the whole church together read the last verses, 3 through 8, together. And yes, the battle does belong to the Lord. There it is. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where will my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. you for the blessing. And you see how it's geared toward the taking of a trip? You can see the language. 
when the psalmist first composed Psalm 121, I think that on this trip he was taking something with him that we all take on whatever trip we're going on, wherever our location may be. I believe that the psalmist was packing a bit of anxiety. And I have good evidence for this. You can see it even in the... Is this echoing? You can see it even in the, the language of the psalm at the very beginning. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where will my help come? Even though the psalmist answers this question quickly, you can tell that there's a bit of anxiety packed away in one of the pockets of his coat maybe tucked away in one of the corners of his carry-on why else would he feel the need to ask and this opening question has a bit of baggage if you'll pardon the pun that may need to be unpacked you see this text has a lot of historical context woven into the lines it's not just flowery language Interpreters will tell you that lifting up your eyes to the hills was something more likely to inspire fear than courage. The hills, what we'd call mountains, being Arkansas people, the hills were dangerous. There weren't guardrails and four-lane highways running along the hills. They were a place where distracted travelers very quickly could meet their end. There were treacherous elements that could dehydrate you or freeze you if you weren't prepared for them. There were the narrow ledges that seemed even more narrow when you had to traverse them. One mistake, one false step from demise. So it's reasonable that the traveler might stow away some anxiety. And on top of that, many believe that this line about lifting eyes to the hills contains some religious overtones. Because the nations surrounding Israel, the pagan nations, would set up their idols on high places where they could walk from a long ways away and see them and lift up prayers or magic spells or whatever they had to offer to these idols the places where they anticipated their help would come from. But for Israel, they'd look up and see barren summits. From where will my help come? Certainly not from the idols. And when you can't clearly see the source of your help, that can lead to some anxiety. I think that the psalmist was taking some anxiety with him then, and I don't really think that 2,700 years, give or take, has changed all that much in that respect. I brought a little with me this morning. What if I get up and forget everything that I plan to say? And I think that you probably brought some with you too. Is this guy going to be any good? I don't know. Um, what about what about what am I going to do for lunch when this thing wraps up? I'm going to have enough time to pick up groceries. Am I going to get any rest before I have to go back to work tomorrow? 
It's all over the place. And maybe in the proper dosage, anxiety is not all that bad. Psychologists say that without it, we'd be in a world of trouble. We might not recognize it, but we would be. Anxiety is something that helps prevent us from swan diving off of a skyscraper, licking a hot stovetop. Anxiety, proportioned properly, helps us to get things done. It's not all bad. So we take some of this anxiety with us on the journey of our lives, from day to day, place to place, event to event. And the amount we take depends on the requirements of that specific season of life, that particular leg of the journey. We run into problems, though, when we overload ourselves with anxiety. In a strange way, we can find ourselves addicted to it. You wouldn't think so, but we do. It manifests itself as a desire to control our surroundings, to be prepared for whatever events might take place. I see it all the time at Olive Garden, where I'm working as a server right now. It's an environment where the anxiety-driven phenomenon of social Darwinism is plainly evident. It's dog-eat-dog. Servers will cut in front of or even shove another server out of the way in order to get their customers the first refill or the last breadstick, because that will mean more tips. It's a place where people are so wrapped up in their own anxiety-laden journey to control their surroundings that they are more than willing to disregard the humanity of others in the process. People there will address one another, not with, how are you, but you making money? That's the greeting. And when someone does ask, how are you, often as not, the response will be some iteration of another day, another dollar. It's a world driven by an atheistic economy of scarcity and fear, all shaped by this free-floating anxiety. And the evidence of this anxiety-driven, zero-sum worldview is evident far beyond Olive Garden kitchens. We all see it in our schools and workplaces and our homes. We all see it, right? This anxiety-driven anxiousness to acquire and store goods so that we can feel like we're in control of our surroundings, feel safe on our journeys. It pervades our society, our world, and often it seems quite attractive to indulge this anxiousness. And in the days of the Old Testament, it could be seen in the form of veils or ashtoreth poles high up on mountain peaks. Nowadays, it shows up in our savings accounts, our 401ks, our garages, our club affiliations. We have a tendency to chase after what we perceive to be relief from this anxiety. And so the psalmist, recognizing this, composed a sort of balm for this faithless, free-floating anxiety that entices humanity. The psalm, as you can see, it doesn't focus on anxiety. It acknowledges it, but it doesn't zoom in on it. It doesn't focus itself on how to equip ourselves for every leg of the journey, every eventuality that we might encounter. 
but rather the psalm highlights the comprehensive divine fidelity of Yahweh, the God who is faithful. Again and again, the word keep comes up. The one who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord will keep you from all evil. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in. In the Hebrew language, the very center of the psalm, the heart of the composition, is the first line of verse 5. The Lord is your keeper. It's reminiscent of the prayer that many of us said as children. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. The psalmist, in response to the anxieties of a journey, has emphatically underlined the faithfulness of a God who keeps us. That doesn't mean, though, that the hills are necessarily less treacherous. It won't mean that we will always be able to see our help immediately when we lift our eyes to the hills. And sometimes, sometimes the idols that others have chosen to worship are going to seem very appealing. Because we can look at them and see them and touch them and sense a presence right there rather than relying on faith. But this comprehensive divine fidelity means that while we won't always see our help on the hills, we may know with assurance that the one who made the hills and the valleys will be faithful and present. We may know that the Lord who made heaven and earth is the ever-present source of our help, the one keeping our souls. And that's something worth taking with us on the journey. If you feel so compelled, you can come forth. We're going to have elders up here to speak with you if you want prayer or need anything at all. And if you haven't yet placed your hope in this God, the God of divine fidelity that is comprehensive, the God who keeps, do it this morning as we stand and sing.